The words of that song uh, kind of grab the heart of those of us who come to the pulpit. It's my prayer every time I prepare to come, God, let them see Jesus. Well, we're working our way through this book of John, and we're into chapter 18. If you didn't catch where we're at, open your Bibles and get there with us. There's been a great battle, a warfare from the beginning of time between two great forces in this universe and beyond, good and evil, God and Satan, and all of those on either side. We see it in the beginning of the book of Genesis when Adam walked with God and Lucifer stepped into the relationship and divided them. The precursor to that was seen in Isaiah 14 when the creation sought to replace the creator. And that battle has continued throughout time. Lucifer, Satan, has sought to destroy God's plan for fellowship and unity between he and mankind ever since his fall from that place in the heavenlies. As we've studied in John's account of the earthly life of Jesus, we have seen this battle continue. In chapter 1, we saw that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And yet later in that same chapter, it says the world did not know Him. As we come to the 18th chapter of John, we see the beginning of the end of this conflict. Oh yes, it continues on. We're going to battle in our lives and in our hearts and in our homes. Our world is going to demonstrate it. But the end is all decided. For all practical purposes, the enemy was met in the garden and on the cross. And he was defeated when our Savior conquered death by coming back from the grave. What a blessing to know the end of the story. What a blessing to know that no matter what happens around us, our God is in control. Amen? Today we begin that final chapter which seals the fate of the enemy and assures the conclusion of God's great plan. Now, honestly, we're looking at that as humanly speaking. That the conclusion has been decided long before time began. But for us, as we've seen it, we see the beginning of it here. Join we as, look, as we look at servants on both sides of the conflict. And swords that just seem to hang useless. Our scene is set in the beginning of this 18th chapter. We've already had it read briefly to us. Verses 1 to 3, Jesus, when he had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples (coughs) across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Chuck Swindoll, one of the commentaries that I look at periodically, sets the picture for us well. He says, Jesus was the only person to live his entire life without failing morally. Yet he was arrested, tried, convicted, 
and condemned to suffer a criminal's punishment. His arrest was a betrayal, his trials a farce, his convictions illegal, and his punishment a travesty of justice. Yet throughout, he remained calm. He answered sincere questions honestly. He spoke the truth with dignity, and he calmly resolved to allow allow the Father to vindicate him at the proper time. Verse 1 begins, Jesus concludes his prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words. In the last three weeks, Pastor Chris has shared with us the blessed prayer of Jesus for his disciples, those with him, as well as for us today. No doubt, the disciples were encouraged and strengthened as they now walked with their teacher across the Kidron Valley into the garden called Gethsemane. This was normal for them. You say, well, knowing some of the things that Jesus prayed about, knowing some of the things that the disciples questioned, how can we say, how can we say that they were uh, encouraged as they came to this place? I was rereading the prayer, and of course there's so much that's there, but I, I think of what I would do as a human being. I would grab hold of things that, that encouraged me. Uh, I, I'm not necessarily a person who is, uh, the glass is half full. I'm a little bit more of, or not half empty, I'm a little bit more of the person that the glass is half full. I like the positive side of things. And I remember that verse in the middle of chapter 17 that said, Take our heart, I have overcome the world. Now there was a lot going on. But I think a lot of the disciples, I, I, I think as they heard that, they grabbed hold of that. I, I would have. And as they were coming, they were saying, we're going out into public. We're going out to the place where we always go to pray. And my thought would be that they were somewhat encouraged. Still questions, but somewhat encouraged as they came to this place. They were worried about his leaving them. Yet they had no understanding of what was going on around them right at that time. At the base of this hill, this mountain as it's called there, but just really a small hill. At the base of that was gathering a group of Roman and Jewish troops who were being organized to surround Jesus and them. And that he, Jesus, would be taken into criminal custody in just a short while. The Kidron Ravine, which they walked across, was a stream. Many times of the year, I'm told, it's basically dry. But in the springtime, that narrow valley was filled with the winter runoff water that came through. The Kidron Valley also, as John was writing this, was a familiar place to Jews, as it is where David fled from Absalom when the sun sought the king's kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30. You don't need to go there, but just listen to a portion. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. The disciples went with Jesus up the edge of the Mount of Olives to go and pray. David was weeping. Not only would this be familiar as to the reader's mind's eye, but it would provide an apt picture of rebellion. As we see between good and evil. 
Absalom overthrowing his father, overthrowing the chosen king. And Satan, through the work of Judas, seeking to overthrow the king of the universe. Now the group arrives at the walled garden that was Jesus' oft-visited prayer retreat. The synoptics tell us, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of Jesus' retreat to pray and prepare himself for the battle which would soon take place. Luke chapter 22 verse 40 states that this was a customary place for Jesus to go and pray. As I was studying, many people assume or feel that this is probably a place where they went even and spent many nights as they were there because they didn't have a house, they didn't have a place to go to. And often people who were traveling with a teacher like this would go and just stay in the out of doors. So probably this was a spot that they went to, not only to pray, but to rest. The other gospel accounts also cover the fact that this place was the normal retreat for Jesus to pray. So John just left that fact out because it was obvious to others. Remember the purpose here of writing that John gives to us. These things are written that you might believe. John didn't have to cover all of those other details. As a matter of fact, the passage that John gives us here is very brief when you put together uh, Matthew's account and Luke's account. John doesn't give us a whole lot. But he was giving us the picture of the battle that would go forth. It was known and the conflict needed to be enjoined at this time in this spot. And that battle would lead to your and my salvation. This was given so that you might have the opportunity for eternal life. So that you might understand what Jesus did for each and every one of us. Well, the scene is there. It's the garden. It's across the Kidron. The disciples have gone up probably after midnight. Probably uh, into the early hours of the evening. And we read in verse 3 that Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there to the garden with lanterns and torches and weapons. Why did John mention these three items? Why did Judas go there with these three items? Perhaps this question sounds a little uh, simple. I'm simple-minded. It was nighttime. There were no lights in the garden. You're all kind of thinking with me. No street lights along the way, right? No doubt Judas, Judas knew of Peter's sword or swords. And he thought others in the disciples or other followers might be there and be armed as well. All of these things could be put out as possibilities. But I think as he mentions these three items, it's interesting for us as John writes them down to think about worldly men going to take with these weapons and lights the light of the world with torches and lanterns. Even Judas, who walked with them, missed the reality. The reality... That they didn't need other light. They had the spiritual light of the world with them. 
And they brought arms, armament, weapons. I went racing back even yesterday to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53 where Jesus, after he tells Peter to put the sword away, says, Why? Why did you do this? If I needed them, I could have asked the Father and he would have sent 12 legions of angels. Swords, clubs, torches, lanterns, all of these things seem pretty small when this group of soldiers comes with a thought of taking the God of the universe captive. Let me ask you just to think about this question. Who's really in control here? I don't think Judas is. I know Peter isn't. And I know the soldiers aren't as well. Look with me as we continue on. Jesus, as he was there, prayed for the disciples. Now, we're talking about things that happen somewhere between verses 2 and 4. But they're not talked about in John's Gospel. Not only did Jesus pray before he left the city, not only do we have all of that that has been recorded as prayers of our Savior, but Matthew tells us in 26, 36 to 46, that he specifically prayed and returned to the disciples at least three times once they got to the garden. Over a time period, perhaps as long as three hours. So John Doesn't give us all of that detail, but keep in mind here that as John tells us that they arrived there, there was then a long period of prayer. There was the time where Jesus encouraged the disciples to pray and watch with him. And yet they went to sleep. The disciples slept, though they were encouraged to do that, to pray. Knowing that Jesus prayed after the Last Supper, he was no doubt praying for the disciples and for us at that time, not for himself. Now, if your Bible's like mine, you can turn back one page to chapter 17, and I want to just take one little portion out, I, not because Pastor Chris didn't cover it, but I just want us to think again about what Jesus has been praying about already for quite a while as the disciples were probably even hearing him. Chapter 17, verses 11 down through 15. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from evil or from the evil one. Jesus is praying. He's praying for these men. 
And now as he's in the garden, he's continuing to pray. Matthew tells us that Jesus prayed, not my will, but thine be done. We remember that Jesus went on his knees and with tears prayed, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But, but he said, I, not my will. What a battle between that nature, human body, and yet spiritual God nature that he had. And yet he knew, he knew what needed to be accomplished. And he prayed, not mine will, but thine be done. Now things begin to intensify as we come to verse number four. Jesus, knowing that all would happen to him, came forward and said to them. Now let me pause because verse three, Judas comes with all of these groups that are with him, the band of soldiers and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. And he went there with the lanterns and torches and weapons and they don't get to make the first move. I, I was a history major. I've studied a little bit of warfare, not much, but battles that went on. You want to be able to make the first move. You don't want to be on defensive. And as they went to that, that spot, as the soldiers were there, as the guards from the, from the temple were there, they wanted to make that step forward. But Jesus stepped up to them. Now that group that's talking about, the group of soldiers that were there, the Roman troops, signifies, the word that's used here, signifies what's called a cohort. That doesn't really matter. This is what matters of that. That could number up to 480 fighting soldiers. With officers and support personnel, it could approach 600 men. Along with them were temple guards. And the garden was surrounded so that Jesus could not escape. 600 men, perhaps. And the temple guards surrounding the outside of that garden. Perhaps all the way back to the base of the mount. The garden was surrounded so that Jesus could not escape. The high priest obviously wanted the Romans to know that they supported Rome's reign so that they, the priest, could continue in their positions. Their desire was financial. Their desire was control. And Jesus was causing difficulties with that. The Roman rulers had been seeking this man, and after his entrance into Jerusalem just the week before, now keep that in mind, we haven't been there for a long time. But what we call Palm Sunday was just a week before. Not even quite a week. And so he says, they said, after that entrance, the Romans believed there could be no slip up in his capture at this time. And the best time to do it would be at night. Rome surely wanted no insurrections such as the one that the Maccabees led in the 167 to 160 B.C. They didn't want that to happen again. But Jesus did not wait for the soldiers to come. Verse number four, he said, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? 
They responded, Jesus of Nazareth. Two different times that same question is asked. Two different times the response is given. It's interesting what happens when he says, when he answers them. Jesus said to them, our version says, I am he. I appreciate Don's reading of I am. There's a lot of different thoughts about what exactly was said. We don't know for sure. Because that he is probably an understood word here in the original. But it says that when he spoke, they drew back and fell to the ground. Two main ideas have been put forward for what happens next. When Jesus answered who he was, perhaps they expected a counterattack. Perhaps they fell back to defensive positions. Interesting when you look at 12 men there and Jesus. 600 and some soldiers. Yeah, I, I probably don't think that was it. That's one of the ideas that's been put out there. More likely, since Jesus used the term ego emi, which means I am, they involuntarily fell back to the person of God the Son. Jesus, just as was said in the Old Testament, just as was said earlier in the Gospels, was saying, I am. I am God. Understand that. And I think in an involuntary way, they fell back and even fell to their knees. Jesus asked them again, whom do you seek? And the same answer was given. Jesus stated that they should let the disciples leave since he was giving in to them. This would fulfill the prayer mentioned in chapter 17, verse 12, which we read just a minute ago, that none of his given to him were lost. As the Savior cared for the disciples, even so he cares for all of his children. I think we see a little bit here, too, of a fulfillment of several verses in Scripture. I'm just going to turn to one. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, where we read, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and in the garden of the Mount of Olives. No, wait a minute, it doesn't say that. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Father. Paul, as he's writing to the Philippian church, is looking ahead to what's going to take place as he puts that there. Isaiah 45 talks about it. Romans chapter 14 mentions it. And it's repeated again in Revelation chapter 3. One day, every knee shall bow. And I think we see just a sample of what would take place at that time. Now, I want to come to this last little picture that's here. I only have uh, 10 or 11 verses to deal with this morning. Next week, we'll come back to the rest of this story. Well, to my part of the rest of the story. And then I think Pastor Stephen will take it after that. Simon Peter, verse 10, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter had already expressed willingness to protect Jesus by force. Luke chapter 22 verse 59 says, Peter speaking, shall we strike with the sword? 
Matthew also tells us in 26.35 that Peter said, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And in verse 51 of the same chapter, Though no name is given, one that is assumed Peter draws his sword and strikes the high priest's servants here. We know that according to John's writing. Brash, impulsive Peter responded to the situation as an unbeliever. He didn't respond as a servant of the God of heaven. He didn't respond as a disciple of Jesus. His reaction was after Jesus had spoken to the disciples. The other accounts tell us that the disciples had been encouraged to pray but had fallen asleep. And perhaps, I'm being kind here, perhaps he had just awakened and jumped to his feet and swung the sword and missed his target. I don't know if that's what happened or not, but I know that when Peter swung the sword, he only got an ear. A right-handed Peter would have struck the left side of the head, unless there was quite a dodge from that one who was attacked. Perhaps he attacked from behind. Then he was a poor swordsman to miss that head and catch the ear. Maybe he was just aiming at the ear. One of the commentators that I read has come to believe, though those first things were, have been presented as plausible from, for a long time, that perhaps he swung at the ear to maim and disfigure him, to keep the man from being able to attend the temple. Malchus represented the high priest, and if somebody was maimed, either their nose or their ear, they were not allowed to serve in the temple. We don't know exactly what happened, except for Malchus' ear was cut off, and Jesus healed his attacker. Jesus healed the attacker. Scripture doesn't say how. I don't know if he reached down and grabbed the ear and put it on there. I don't know if he, you know, spit into the mud as he did at another time and put it together and placed. I think he just put it up that maybe he recreated another ear. I don't know. I don't think that's important. The important thing is that Jesus took the one who was attacking and healed him to once again show that he was God. Jesus rebuked Peter for responding as an unbeliever. Look down in verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In the synoptics, Jesus speaks to Peter and encourages him to pray and not to fall into temptation. No doubt he was awake, or at least quickly awake, when Judas and the guards arrived. Jesus prayed that not he himself might be spared, but rather that God's will would be accomplished. This would be the proper response for Peter. This would be a step forward for Peter. But after the kiss given by Judas to the Savior, after the time of prayer that Jesus had with the disciples before They left uh, Jerusalem. After the time of coming across the Kidron and up into this place where they were supposed to pray, 
And then all of a sudden they're surprised by the soldiers that were there, the officers from the temple, and then even Judas's kiss of the Savior. Peter, Peter's heart controlled his actions. Jesus said, Peter, put away your sword. As we often do, Peter put this, took the situation into his own hands. Let me personalize a little bit this directive from the Lord. Peter used his ability, his tools that he had, instead of trusting his Lord. He didn't listen to his Lord. This is an example for us today. Let me make a suggestion to you, if I might. I want to encourage you today to put away your sword. I know most of us don't have literal swords. Anybody here with a sword at home? I I see one. Uh, There are a few. All right, good. Are they metal, plastic, or... That's great. Jesus says to us, put away your sword. Not that sword. Not that, not that one that you're carrying that you raised your hand so proudly to let me know that you had. Just to embarrass me at this time. No, he's telling us, put away your will. Put away your desires. Put away your answers to whatever you are facing today. And place those situations in God's hands. We have a way of doing something apart from the Lord's way. We have a way of looking at things and saying, Well, I know the Lord could take care of this, but I I, I think it could be handled by... By this, I I, I think I could, Lord, I'll take care of this. I thought about this this week, and as I was going over this in my mind, I was thinking, we so often react just the way Peter did. Hopefully, we've never cut off anybody's ear. Hopefully, we've not slugged somebody in just the same type of way. But we often take things into our own hands and say, Lord, I'll do it. And by saying so, we say this. Lord, I know better. It's okay, God. Just rest a little bit. I'll handle it. The Savior says, put away your own will. Put away your own desires, your own way of handling these things. Rest in Him. That doesn't mean we go and sit on the top of a hill and say, Okay, Lord, you take care of everything. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do anything. You handle everything that comes into my life. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when we face those trials, when we face those difficulties, when Satan's working against us, those are the times we need to drop to our knees and say, Lord, not my will. 
yours be done. I know this is particularly important as a piece of the message of Jesus' life for us to understand that he was willing to go to the cross to provide salvation for us. I understand that. And we're going to be talking about that next week even more. But I'm also looking at this and saying he's given us an example of how we live in the stress and the difficulties that we face every day. I I don't know what it might be. Could be health problems, could be family problems, could be financial things. I, I don't know what it is. It doesn't really matter what it is. But I want to encourage you to put your sword away. Get on your knees and open up your hands. Open up your hands and say, Lord, not my will, thine be done. Think where we would have be if Jesus had not taken that cup that the Father has given to him. Think where we would be if he had not said, not my will, but thine be done. Would you bow your heads this morning? And I want to ask you two things. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I want to ask you to think about Perhaps something that's going on in your life right now. If there's not anything that's just, you know, really difficult, really hard, a real battle that you're going through, then be praying for others around you that God would work there. Think about what that might be. Think about some steps that you're heading into. And I want you with me just as a picture of yielding our hearts to our Savior. To reach your hands out in front of you and open your palms and say, Lord, not my will. Thine be done. Could you do that today? Hands out in front of you. Palms open. Not my will, Lord. Thine be done. Father, we come today realizing that every time we open up this book, we're on hallowed ground. And I have no desire to trivialize what the Savior went through at this time. But Father, we as your children need to respond not as Peter, but rather we need to respond as our example our Savior did for us. When he said, I'm willing Lord, to do your will, Father, to do your will, no matter what the pain, no matter what the cost. Lord, there could be people here that are 
facing difficult times ahead of them. Lord, I pray that you'd encourage them. I pray that you would help their focus to be on what you have for them and help them, Lord, to seek out your direction. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us with the reality that our Savior, even today, is praying for us, interceding for us, lifting up what we're going through to the Father. And Father, he sent us peace through his Spirit who dwells within us, each one of us who know you as Savior. Thank you again, Lord, for your word. Let it be an encouragement to us. In Jesus' name, amen.